The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello there, this is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westridge and a psychiatrist, and I'm standing in for Mary, who's taking a break this week. This week we have Petros Lavunas, who's the director of Addiction, uh, Addiction Institute of New York, which used to be Smithers, and chief of addiction psychiatry at St. Luke's and Roosevelt Hospitals in New York City. He's going to be talking to us about um, the use of crystal methamphetamine with a great title called Valentine and Tina, Love in the Time of Crystal Methamphetamine. Petros is a board-certified addiction psychiatrist and fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine and distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. His academic interests include psychotherapy and psychopharmacology of addiction, teaching of psychiatry and addiction medicine, gay and lesbian mental health, and the behavioral addictions. Dr. Lavunas is the co-author of a self-help book, Sober Siblings, How to Help Your Alcoholic Brother or Sister and Not Lose Yourself, which was published by the Capo Books in 2008, and is currently working on two more books, Co-Occurring Substance Use and Other Psychiatric Disorders, and a, a book on motivation and change for general psychiatrists, and actually a third on the use of buprenorphine in um, clinical practice. So, hi, Petros. Hello, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. So, Petros, tell us a little bit about what methamphetamine is um, and similarities and differences from cocaine. I think there's differences in who uses these drugs on the West Coast, in the middle, Midwest, and on the East Coast. So, we have a broad population from sure. across the country here. Yeah, methamphetamine itself, crystal methamphetamine, can be thought as the, the turbo cocaine. Uh, it does what cocaine does, only it does it uh, bigger and better. Uh, the high is much higher than the cocaine. The low after using the cocaine or the, uh, after using the crystal methamphetamine is uh, much deeper and more prolonged than um, with cocaine. Uh, it simply uh, takes whatever excitement and uh, stimulation cocaine would give you and multiplies it by three or four. Uh, and that, of course, is why it's so addictive. Um, as you said, what the, in 2009, what we see is two distinct populations who use crystal methamphetamine. On one hand, we have um, the use in the west side of the, of the country and uh, the south and the southwest. And uh, people use crystal methamphetamine primarily for recreational uh, reasons, just to get high. Uh, sometimes they use it to stay awake for long periods of time. Uh, and we see uh, the prevalence of uh, crystal methamphetamine use to be equal between men and women, uh, straight and gay. Uh, the other 
use of methamphetamine is rather unique to the uh, male gay community. And uh, we see that in major urban centers in New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago. And uh, people use methamphetamine very much in conjunction with sex. And, of course, that's uh, of uh, great uh, trouble when it comes to HIV transmission because uh, when people are so high with crystal methamphetamine, uh, they don't care about safer sex guidelines or anything else, and they expose themselves to a tremendous risk of HIV transmission. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say meth is much more um, potent or mm, powerful, both in its high and its lows, um, than cocaine, are you talking about inhaled coke or smoked crack? I would put them uh, together. Of course, uh, smoked crack uh, gets to the brain faster and uh, it may have uh, a greater uh, addictive potential than uh, uh, snort cocaine. But uh, the, uh, and of course, the, 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 the issue of the free base is also something that makes it more available to the brain and, and more addictive that way. But uh, these are um, kind of uh, lower level uh, differences as compared to the mayhem that uh, crystal methamphetamine brings uh, to the brain. Uh, when we studied in, in rats, we found that um, uh, cocaine increases the dopamine level in the brain uh, by four times from, let's say, 100% of your usual dopamine level in the brain makes it uh, to uh, about 400 or so. While with crystal methamphetamine, uh, the uh, dopamine level in the brain goes way over a thousand. Sometimes people speculate that it may go up to several thousands. So it is um, it's a radically different experience. It's the, the nuclear weapon, <laughs> if you like, as compared to more conventional weapons of uh, cocaine and alcohol, marijuana and the like. And even though it's got the amphetamine end to its name, crystal methamphetamine is a, um, another beast as well, in terms of much more powerful than the regular Ritalin, Adderall, and um, amphetamines that people would use in pill form. It is a matter of a dose as well. Uh, the amphetamines and methamphetamines that we use in clinical uh, medicine uh, have a very different dosing than uh, what we're talking about here, but also the route of administration. The fact that crystal methamphetamine is smoked uh, and the context within which it is smoked also makes uh, for a tremendous difference. Now, the context in which it smoked, let's come back to this, especially this issue of sex and um, issues around that. But geographically, we've seen an interesting sort of epidemiological shift or, or a geographical march of methamphetamine across the country. Could you say something about that? Because yes, it, it really started, uh, well, if we want to go a little back on the history of crystal methamphetamine, uh, we found it that um, back in the 80s, it was primarily in the West and the Southwest, and it was uh, used bit, uh, among blue-collar workers. Uh, a lot of times, uh, methamphetamine was used for people to for truck from uh, truck drivers, people who were uh, uh, need to stay awake for uh, several hours at a time. And then in the 1990s, it marched, as you said, to the Midwest, and we start seeing uh, gay men use it. We saw a lot of athletes using and students, students who want to stay awake in order to study and uh, perform better in the exam Again, the next would, day. This would be the smoked form of meth. That would be the smoked form yeah. of meth. 
uh, and then it is in this decade that uh, became so uh, uh, epidemic in uh, in the gay community as I talked before. Uh, now there was an interesting article that was written uh, two or three years ago that was uh, had the title that I'm paraphrasing. Um, Could you possibly have an epidemic if you do not involve the Northeast? Uh, because uh, despite this march of uh, crystal methamphetamine, uh, the Northeast of the country really has been spared of the crystal methamphetamine epidemic except for the gay community, as I mentioned before. But it's kind of amazing that we haven't had the, the same um, problem in the East as, uh, as we've had in the West. Do you think that's just a matter of competition from cocaine, or what do you, how do you explain that? Well, there are, there are a few explanations of it. Uh, one of them has to do with um, uh, the housing in, uh, on the East Coast, that the apartments in New York are so small, we all live in this uh, tiny little uh, apartment, and it's a little difficult to have a crystal meth lab in a studio <laughs> in, in New York, okay. while, of course, in the West and the Southwest, you can have a trailer or you can have a garage or more open space. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, one explanation. The other one, which I find more uh, significant, is that um, the culture in, uh, in New York is rather strict when it comes to the work ethic, that uh, you can do whatever you want to do on the weekend, but you better be at your desk uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, giving uh, 100% of what you've got. Uh, otherwise, uh, you can't really live in this, uh, in, in this city. So... Um, Maybe that uh, other parts of the country, like California and the West, may be a little more tolerant to terrible Tuesdays. As I said before, methamphetamine gives you this prolonged withdrawal syndrome, this prolonged low that uh, has given the, the term terrible Tuesday. And uh, New York cannot really deal with terrible Tuesdays. We want our drugs in and out, uh, different kind of culture over here. I see. Although the Northeast has got a lot more than Manhattan. I know you've got a... A New York, a um, New Yorker image of Manhattan and the rest of the, <laughs> the state here. But um, I'm, I'm drawing from this particular article as well to point out that uh, California and New York City have this reciprocal relationship with drugs of abuse. That as soon as a drug becomes popular in New York City, it becomes popular in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and vice versa, with the exception of crystal methamphetamine. You're right. I have a little bit of a Manhattan-centric view of the world. So the other issue around the history, which is interesting, was um, around how methamphetamine got developed. You know, mm-hmm. it was used um, originally for the mi- for military purposes. And um, again, this is an interesting point about how drugs expand beyond their original um, purposes. And there's been some interesting articles about the cosmetic use of various drugs as well for mm-hmm. um, performance enhancement. But then when drugs over into the broader population um, and the breaks upon its use, um, use become eroded, um, you end up with a much, uh, a much broader problem as more and more people get exposed to drugs. With, um, You're absolutely right, Mark, and if I can make a comment here, this is, uh, if anybody out there is interested in uh, research, if we have any students uh, in the audience, I firmly believe that this is a wonderful, wonderful area to study because uh, we don't know much about uh, cosmetic uh, psychopharmacology. We don't know much about performance-enhancing drugs, and uh, we do need to learn so much more about it. 
I, I mean, there are some studies that show that uh, uh, pilots perform better. They are more concentrated and they, they can uh, do a better job with some uh, dose of, of a stimulant. And, of course, that's extremely ethically uh, confusing to us because how could we possibly uh, recommend the use of amphetamines to, uh, to, to, uh, to people who do not have any psychiatric disorders whatsoever? On the other hand, you may very well want your pilot to have better concentration than your average person who doesn't suffer from any psychiatric disorder. So right. do we really uh, support these uh, superhumans and uh, so on? So it, it, it's a fascinating area. It's a fascinating area, that's right. It's also um, an issue of the breaks that you have on the context to use that performance-enhancing drug. So there's a big difference, perhaps, between using uh, some stimulants in the context of some examination study and incurring the risk of loss of control and exposure to um, higher doses and developing an, an addiction, um, but then using it in a broader context for more recreational purposes across the board where you end up with higher doses for longer periods of time um, and greater development of dependency. Absolutely. We're going to come up to a break and then we'll return and focus a bit more on um, the use of the drug in the gay and lesbian thing. Sure. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <laughs> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend. 
who wasn't in junior high, wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit CyberTipLine.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, this is Mark Green standing in for Mary. Petros and I were talking during the break, and we both wanted to stress that we're not endorsing the use of um, illicit drugs for performance enhancement, but it does raise the very interesting intersection between drug set and setting, between the drug use, the personality, and the context in which it's used, and that drug dependency can arise really with an intersection of all of those, but more exposure for longer periods of time certainly increases the risk of addictions. Anyway, would you would you agree with that comment, Petra? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's get back to methamphetamine. Uh-huh. Tell me some interesting things about its use in the gay and lesbian scene, and um, and particularly its use with sex. Well, the way that it has developed in the in the gay community is uh, very much a party drug. We have the classic uh, club drugs like uh, ecstasy and ketamine and uh, gamma hydroxybutyrate and GHB. And these drugs, although still uh, used, uh, they have been eclipsed by the use of crystal methamphetamine. Uh, in 2004, there was this explosion of uh, crystal meth in New York and uh, Los Angeles and other major urban centers in the gay community. And uh, the way that um, we see the develop is that uh, people get uh, an incredible sense of mastery and an incredible sense of um, attractiveness with uh, with the use of crystal methamphetamine. Um, I have patients who tell me that uh, they have a very low self-esteem, that uh, they look at themselves in the mirror and they find themselves unattractive and they don't think that they can possibly uh, ever, um, you know, get somebody to, to have sex with them. Uh, and then they get high on crystal methamphetamine and they go in front of the very same mirror and they see themselves as taller, uh, more muscular, having a bigger penis, uh, being far, far more attractive. And it's not really a hallucination what this is, just they see the, the reality only with a much, much uh, better, much more exciting uh, light. And, of course, that uh, is extremely uh, pleasurable and gets them into quite a lot of trouble. Do you, and of course over time, as it's an appetite suppressant um, and people are, might be dancing or working out more with, the, with it, you probably do end up losing a lot of weight um, and for a time at least looking better before, you're looking, before looking worse. Uh, for people who have who are overweight, that uh, may be the case, but uh, we see crystal methamphetamine use uh, quite a lot with people who are very, very uh, well-built and uh, they uh, do go to the gym regularly and they are not overweight. It's just more of a psychological state of uh, uh, feeling uh, either sub, uh, you know, suboptimal or uh, normal and really wanting to feel um, 
even better. So people feel super excited and positive about their self-image. They have more confidence, therefore, going into a, um, a scene and picking people up. Correct. Yeah, that's very much so. Um, now, people have linked that to uh, internalized homophobia, something that's um, uh, very well described in the gay community. Uh, pretty much every gay man and woman uh, at some point in his or her life had to uh, struggle with uh, coming out, had to struggle with uh, the homophobia of the world, uh, the the shame and the ridicule uh, and some of this uh, uh, real um, derogatory experience has become internalized where people uh, start feeling that they really are ugly and that they really are uh, second-class citizens, that they are uh, involved in something evil, shameful, uh, and uh, ugly and dirty. So um, it's uh, something that we do see across the board. Now, the reaction to this uh, internalized homophobia is very uh, different among different people and a segment of the population by no means the majority. It's a small number of uh, gay men uh, find Christian methamphetamine as the way to address these kind of feelings. So a way of helping that sense of shame um, and that sense of inferiority and disgust in themselves in some mm-hmm. way, uh, yes. is this would be sort of classic self-medication hypothesis. Yes. Um, saying that they are using the crystal methamphetamine to reduce that sense of shame, feel proud and powered up, um, and, and able to uh, therefore go out in public and feel super confident about themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you, when you're working in psychotherapy with um, uh, gay and lesbian um, patients who have developed a um, methamphetamine addiction, do you hear these kind of narratives? Uh, it is one of these situations where lesbians are not really very much part of, uh, of this picture. This uh, uh, sexual compulsion and uh, crystal methamphetamine use seems to be rather unique to the gay male community. So we don't see uh, our lesbian patients uh, being uh, very much attracted or addicted to uh, crystal methamphetamine. It's, it's the guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this narrative um, I do hear. Uh, sometimes, uh, but I also hear the narrative of people who do not feel all that shameful, not all that bad about themselves, and they just uh, want to uh, to fit in, to fit into the the larger culture. Um, addiction being a classic uh, biopsychosocial illness, it's not only the self-medication of uh, uh, low self-esteem and other psychological constructs that we have. It's also a response to our uh, environment, to our peer. Uh, group, our peer pressure to our microculture, uh, the people around us. Mm-hmm. So trying to u- trying to use or choosing to use because your peer group is using a great deal, so it's more prevalent. So you say, well, why not give it a try? Just develop a dependency, irrespective of your internal this right. internal chain that you started with. Right, and this is something that has given rise to a considerable controversy from the public health perspective. We have made a tremendous effort, and the Addiction Institute has been a very big part of this effort, to make crystal methamphetamine use in the 
gay community not to be cool, not to be okay anymore. Uh, lots of uh, campaign uh, ads and uh, uh, all kinds of interventions that we have uh, tried. And I can say that in 2009, it is not quite as acceptable in the gay community to use crystal methamphetamine. Now, some colleagues of mine, including uh, Dr. Steve Lee, who's uh, the guy who wrote Overcoming Crystal Methamphetamine, very, very knowledgeable about crystal methamphetamine, has done a lot of research on it, believes that this was a bad thing, that uh, we have driven the addiction underground, that we don't see as many people in our clinics with crystal methamphetamine uh, problem because it's not okay anymore. People are even more ashamed about it, and uh, they wouldn't even come to the doctor. So we may have done more harm than good. And he has some uh, data to support that in terms of uh, Internet uh, sites and uh, crystal methamphetamine use uh, through the Internet that seems to be very robust uh, these days. So suggesting that crystal methamphetamine use has not gone down amongst gay men, it's just Correct. coming less for treatment. Right, that has, begun, that has gone underground. I disagree with that. I, I think that uh, we have made a dent, that it's uh, not as cool anymore, less people use uh, crystal methamphetamine, but... Um, I also agree with Steve that uh, a small number of people may have suffered from this uh, uh, public health campaign. Given the prominence of, or given the importance of peer group, um, uh, has there been a lot of seepage? Have you seen a lot of seepage of crystal meth dependency from, from the gay community out into the heterosexual community in New York City? Not as much, not as much, and that is the, the surprising part uh, of the whole crystal methamphetamine uh, story, that uh, there's a lot of use in the heterosexual uh, community, but um, this again happens in the West, in the Southwest, and, the, and recently in the Midwest, but not in the Southeast, in the Northeast. Mm. Now, the use of um, crystal meth um, with sex mm -hmm. is interesting, because on the one hand, it makes you very feel very sexual, um, and can sustain erections and delay orgasm. On the, but in later phases, makes it very difficult to have sex right? and, to, and to sustain an erection. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, um, it has a, a particular uh, expression that is used in the, in the streets about this effect that uh, I'm not sure we can say it on the radio, but uh, it, uh, it's a euphemism because... Um, you, as you, exactly as you said, you end up with decreased erections, not increased erections, as some people think. Uh, and in some sense, that is a built-in mechanism that uh, crystal methamphetamine had to decrease the risk of HIV transmission. That, yes, you would get all excited about um, having sex, but then uh, uh, the hardware, as it were, uh, wouldn't be in place to do it. So... Uh, Although, um so it, it, was, it was somewhat of a, of a kind of, of, a, of a deterrent that way. Right, although sometimes um, I hear patients tell me that therefore they use more vigorous methods which could increase the risk of transmission as well. Absolutely. Um, that it's such a mental phenomenon, this increased sex drive, that it's not all about the hardware, um, that, they, that um, they'll still be trying for a great deal of time and, it, and causing a lot of damage along the way. That is correct, too, and there's uh, uh, 
some medical uh, terror stories that uh, we have seen uh, exactly from this uh, uh, compulsive uh, use of uh, sexual organs uh, despite uh, the inability to really have an erection. But the, the tremendous uh, difference happened in the late 90s with the introduction of the erectile dysfunction agents like uh, um, sildenafil, Viagra, and the other agents, so people would uh, uh, start using these erectile dysfunction agents and um, not have a hardware problem anymore, uh, in which case uh, they could have uh, sex. And some people actually say that uh, the increased HIV transmission in gay men that we've seen in the late 90s may be linked to the uh, chrysamethaferamine epidemic. Especially in conjunction with these drugs like Cialis, Viagra and others. We'll come back after our break. Thanks. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Hey, Jack, you got a sec? Yeah, sure, come on in. Yeah, I was wondering if you... Jack, your hair's on fire. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I just need to finish this sales report, and then I'll probably, oh, I don't know, let me lie down for a bit. But I'm, I'm sure it'll go away. But the flames are getting bigger. Sh- shouldn't I... Your hair, there's so much fire. No, 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 I'll be fine. What can I help you with? Oh, dear. Well, at least we know the sprinkler system works. You wouldn't ignore this, so why ignore the signs of a stroke? If you or someone you know suddenly experiences numbness of the face, arm, or leg, or sudden trouble speaking, seeing, or walking, don't wait to get help. Call 911 right away, because time lost is brain lost. To find out more, visit www.strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE. This message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So this is Mark Green, standing in for Mary with Petros Laguna from the Addiction Treatment Agency. 
that right? Addiction Treatment Institute or Addiction Institute? Of Addiction Institute of New York. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> um, Petros, you were just, I wanted to bring you back to the public health efforts and prevention models because um, so much of it focuses, there's two strands, to, several strands to treatment. One is trying to focus on peer group and acceptance skills. One is um, trying to help people later on, once mm-hmm. they've developed dependency, to um, change their lives. But that's obviously much... Um, by that time, many people have developed HIV. So can you say a little bit, or, or other problems, can you say a little bit more about some of the public health models and discrepancies? Um, mm-hmm. the, the first part is uh, what we call primary prevention, which means for uh, campaigns that are targeting uh, people who have never used methamphetamine or they may be at the very early stages of uh, methamphetamine uh, use. Uh, and uh, these are your basic uh, scare tactics. It's an educational effort. We go to the to the clubs where people use crystal meth. We uh, flood the gay neighborhoods with um, little cards that uh, uh, tell about the connection between uh, crystal methamphetamine use, disinhibition, unsafe sex, and then HIV transmission. Um, and uh, these uh, are pretty straightforward and not all that controversial. The problem that happens with the secondary prevention, secondary prevention uh, is public health efforts that target people who are using crystal methamphetamine and may have developed a full-blown disease of crystal methamphetamine dependence. And uh, quite often the campaign for these uh, uh, people is uh, something of the, uh, of, of the notion uh, crystal-free and sexy, that somebody can be crystal-free and still be sexy. And we did a, a major campaign in New York where we had this uh, rather attractive uh, men without their shirts on who were carrying some kind of box, and they were saying uh, crystal-free and, uh, and sexy. And uh, we got attacked uh, for this campaign very, very reasonably because uh, people said that uh, maybe we're sending out the wrong message. Uh, if you go to a high school and you're a celebrity and you tell the, the, the high school kids, listen to me, I've done all this cocaine, I've done all this crystal meth, I've done all this heroin, and I've been to hell, but now I'm clean and uh, I have a wonderful life and I'm successful and rich and beautiful again, what the kids are going to hear is not that you had a terrible time using the drugs. What the the kids are going to hear is that you did what you did, you had all the fun in the world using the drugs, and you were able to come out on the other side beautiful and successful and rich and famous. That's exactly what the kids want to do themselves. So in that sense, it's a very wrong message to have these uh, rather attractive people coming out uh, in ads and uh, uh, commercials and campaigns and so on uh, who look so good and they're so successful to tell uh, the young generation not to do drugs. It really is counterproductive. It perpetuates a myth of invincibility. Absolutely. You can have all the fun in the world, then you'll pay some dues, maybe go to a 28-day program uh, somewhere, you know, in California, in Malibu or somewhere else, and then you'll come out on the other side and you'll be just fine. What's the big deal? On the other hand, scare scare programs have also not been shown to be very effective, I thought, for for many drugs um, and can 
it, it scares the people who will be scared and probably not going to use drugs anyway. That is correct, uh, too. <laughs> it does not seem to significantly impact the rates of addictions. Is, is, is that your That is true. The two parts that seem to have the most effect in young people uh, are the following. One is disfigurement. Uh, people who have lost limbs, uh, people who uh, uh, have horrible skin conditions, uh, people who uh, have lost teeth and the like, that stuff uh, sticks into young people's mind and they say, that's not what I, <laughs> I want to see myself as. And the other one is hypocrisy. Uh, any kind of campaign that points to uh, the hypocrisy of the uh, tobacco industry or the um, uh, drug dealers or anybody else uh, is something that sticks into young people's minds. Mm-hmm. Right, because both of those things are real clashes with the valued goals that they hold. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay. Yes. So have you seen... So are either of those approaches being used in New York or across the nation now? Yes, the disfigurement one is the most classic one that we've, we've done the here in New York. With methamphetamine. With, with methamphetamine. And uh, the image that most people have is the uh, the, the skull, uh, somebody's face that is uh, becoming more of a, of a skull because of the uh, weight loss and the picking of the skin and the horrible... Uh, um, Infections that people get on the skin. The other one is the the, the crystal meth mouth, the, the the meth mouth, which is a horrible dentition. It's also something yeah. that a lot of people remember about these campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move a little bit to secondary prevention or mm-hmm. um, treatment, as we would think of it. Um, and um, tell me a little bit about some of the different treatment models out there, and particularly some of the challenges which are faced by the gay community um, as they begin to access treatment for methamphetamine addiction? In in, uh, the gay community, the major paradigm, the major model of pretty much any kind of crisis is, of course, the HIV crisis. Uh, If we're going to be faced with an epidemic with crystal methamphetamine or anything else, the first place where our mind goes is... HIV. What did we do for HIV? What worked? What did not work for HIV? Let's try some similar approaches for the new problem, the new epidemic. Now, this is this is good because it does uh, speak to a grassroots uh, effort, the same way that safer sex was uh, a grassroots uh, effort uh, for in the in the gay community and, and a quite successful one. But it has its limitations. Uh, a lot of gay uh, men in uh, New York City and San Francisco and Los Angeles feel that uh, if only uh, the sober people, if only the people who do not use crystal meth would uh, go and talk to the crystal meth users and say things like, uh, let's go to the movies instead of going to the uh, club tonight, then we would not have a crystal meth program problem. That this is primarily a, a, a grassroots task. And that is not exactly true, because if somebody has developed crystal methamphetamine dependence, they do suffer from a medical illness that needs a medical treatment. These people do need to come to the doctor. These people do need to come to an addiction treatment center. Uh, just simply having a good friend who is going to be 
uh, telling you just uh, don't do it, uh, let's just avoid the, the, the dangerous situation, is often not enough. It's welcome, and I'm, and I'm delighted that the community has this kind of reaction, but often it's not enough. You can't really compete with these thousands and thousands of uh, dopamine spikes in, in the methamphetamine addict's brain by simply saying, uh, let's just uh, have a donut instead of uh, uh, a meth. Yeah, if that was the case, you wouldn't have needed to write your book on sober siblings. <laughs> um, the, the love of family and, the, and, um, and jobs would be enough, but of course right. addiction is um, defined when those things are no longer enough. Correct. Oh, that's a nice way to define it. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, you know, before, we've, we've spoken a lot about HIV. Can you say, do you have any facts and figures on HIV and methamphetamine and the increased risks involved? The best research in this, uh, in these matters has been done here in New York City by the uh, group of uh, Perry Halkidis. Perry Halkidis is uh, the uh, uh, head of psychology at, at, at NYU of applied psychology. Um, we do have some studies. Uh, we do know about the, the, the connection, uh, but I don't have really any hard figures on it. Uh, the one thing that I can say is that uh, new cases of HIV uh, seem to have increased by 18% uh, in, the, in the late 90s, and that is what uh, a lot of us feel is uh, due to uh, the methamphetamine epidemic. Right, because that was after quite a sustained drop and a change in safe sex practices. Right. Right. That, make, that would make sense. So an increase of 18% in the, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, a decrease in the use of um, ne- needle sharing, um, better provision of um, safe injection practices mm-hmm. for heroin dependency. So you, wouldn't, so you would have hoped for a concurrent reduction to be sustained in uh, HIV transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, so just so people, uh, I, I couldn't agree more with Mark, just so that people know, the majority of heroin addicts who contract HIV in 2009 do not get it from dirty needles. The majority of heroin addicts who seroconvert to HIV uh, seroconvert because of unsafe sex. So we've made a tremendous uh, gain in uh, terms of dirty needles. Uh, we have not made uh, similar gains in terms of safe sex. Right. Um, all right, getting back to the point of some of those challenges faced by the um, gay community. So you're saying there's limitations to befriending. There's limitations to um, just say no. Mm-hmm. I guess this is an extension of a just say no policy um, because there's biochemical changes or neurobiological changes which have occurred which, which renders people, people's choice as impulsive and drug-seeking. Um, so what do you do? Well, we do have treatments. Unfortunately, we do not have pharmacological treatments. Unfortunately, we don't have any uh, medications that uh, combat crystal methamphetamine, but uh, we do have uh, quite uh, safe and effective uh, psychological interventions that uh, work quite well. Uh, one of them is the matrix model we developed uh, out west uh, in the Los Angeles area and involves uh, individual psychotherapy, group psychotherapy, uh, mutual health groups like Crystal Methamphetamine Anonymous, uh, treatment of depression and anxiety if the patient happens to have depression and anxiety. Let me slow you down because I want to hear more about it. Okay. Stop the break and then come back in a moment. All right. Thanks. 
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, uh. no! There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom <laughs> and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Uh. Shoot, get away. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see! Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow! For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, this is Mark Green, standing in for Mary Petros. 
um, let's come back to the treatment issues. You were just introducing the matrix uh-huh. um, model of treatment, and let's go back to that. Can you start again with your description? Sure. Uh, the, the matrix model of treatment is a little bit the, the kitchen sink because it is group psychotherapy, individual uh, counseling, uh, crystal methamphetamine an- anonymous, treatment of uh, co-caring, depression, and anxiety. But it has a couple of things that are a little unique, and that one of them is contingency management, and the other is family therapy. And if I could spend a couple of uh, minutes uh, on these topics, uh, that would be good. Um, contingency management. Uh, this is a program that is based on rewarding patients for good behavior, rewarding patients for clean uh, urine toxicology examinations. In the past, we used to um, um, uh, work with urine toxicology examinations in a negative sense, meaning uh, every time we would catch somebody having a, a dirty urine, as we used to say, uh, a, a urine that uh, had some drugs in it, we would punish the patient and would uh, uh, require them to go to more uh, meetings and so on. And if they had uh, a lot of times, uh, if they had many dirty urines, maybe we would even kick them out of the program. Contingency management turns this uh, um, this. Um, procedure to its head and essentially does the opposite. It expects patients to continue using and if you don't use, if you have a clean urine, then you get rewarded and that's when a patient gets a voucher for Burger King or for Filene's Basement or movies or something like that. And if the patient is able to string together several clean urines, then you give them a bigger reward. Uh, and this has been shown to be quite effective both for uh, poor people and for rich people. It seems that the monetary value of the reward is independent of the effectiveness of the, of the, of the treatment, and uh, we're delighted that um, this is something that seems to have been helpful both for cocaine and methamphetamine addiction. And you can use vouchers. People tend to use vouchers because they're a little bit more palatable for um, treatment facilities and families to provide vouchers. But money works extremely well. There's a bit more concern that people would exchange money right. for drugs, but that doesn't really seem to happen in uh, the research. The, the active ingredient is really the gold star. We were doing some experiment. Lisa Marsh here at the Addiction Institute uh, is working with computer models of uh, contingency management where you get uh, a big star on the computer when you say, congratulations, you're the best, uh, you have a clean urine. And these uh, preliminary uh, results from that study show that uh, maybe even that works. So it really is a gold star that it's the active ingredient in the intervention. As well as in, um, in other forms of treatment, the affection treatment alliance, the Absolutely. and the sense of pattern, pat on the back. That, that, and that's really one of the big deals about contingency management. I think one of the, the studies of the um, clinical trials network uh-huh. looked at different groups which had ex- extremely good outcomes with contingency management in methadone maintenance clinics where they used cocaine. And they they found that there were just islands of these particular therapists that were so warm and fantastic and they had great results. And um, the the contingency management treatment can really change the feel from a punitive um, feeling to a positivity and excitement 
and an eagerness to actually be in the treatment. Exactly. And, and of course, what we're doing with uh, addiction treatment all across addiction treatment in 2009 is that we're moving from the stick to the carrot. Uh, we have tried the, the stick method for many, many years, and we have failed. And we are having great results with a kinder, gentler, more motivational, less confrontational approach. Absolutely. And clinics are usually averse to the idea of contingency management, but once they've introduced it, they never look back. Politically, there's a problem with contingency management that uh, a lot of uh, uh, agencies uh, from the government and other components of uh, funding streams are a little reluctant to say, I'm going to pay patients so that they can stay clean. Is that what you, you, you're telling me? You want me to give them money uh, just because they did not use drugs? And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what we're saying because it is a very effective uh, treatment model. Cost-effective too. I think there's been and cost-effective, yes, cost-effectiveness <laughs> over the time. And, the, and the, those models are difficult because you can't roll in the, the cost of treatment for HIV for the next 20 years. Um, those are difficult to calculate. But even on fairly rudimentary measures, it seems to be more cost-effective. Yeah. Family treatment. Family treatment. Uh, one thing uh, uh, very specific there is that we are working very much with. Uh, families of community. Uh, a lot of our patients have lost their families of origin uh, because of homophobia, because they moved uh, to New York to uh, stay away from a very kind of uh, hostile environment. So they may have lost their families of origin, but they have developed uh, wonderful families of community in uh, New York and in, in the gay scene. So uh, as long as this uh, my patient's friends are sober and they do not use uh, crystal meth. They are more than welcome to come in a family session, even though they may have no uh, blood uh, connection with my, with my patient. So really loosening up the concept of family to instead a support network which can be strengthened. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we do find that these families of community are as strong, if not stronger, than a lot of their families of origin. That's an interesting in, um, innovation. <laughs> um, now, much treatment, a lot of treatment is um, fairly intensive initially mm-hmm. and then tends to phase out a bit. And how does this work for methamphetamine? Ah, this is, uh, I'm so glad you brought this up because the one of the course. worst things that we do in the crystal methamphetamine treatment is to graduate patients early. Uh, we find that uh, after 15 days or so of, uh, of sobriety, the patients start feeling so well. They have this honeymoon period where everything is wonderful, and uh, they uh, are so hopeful, and they say, well, I'm never, never going to use again. And uh, quite often we're tempted to say to the patient, congratulations, you did so well, now go your merry way. Meanwhile, the biology of the system is such that after day 45 or up to day 90, patients quite often hit what we call the wall and extreme, extreme cravings for crystal methamphetamine come back and a lot of patients relapse. So it is uh, essential that we keep the patient in treatment uh, at least uh, three months uh, following cessation of the drug. And do you see, we're coming up to the end of the show, but one question about comorbidity. Are you seeing a, um, a resurge, an increase of comorbid disorders at that point or is it something different? No, it's about the same, the comorbid disorders, I would say. It's just pure cravings for the drug in a very, very primitive fashion. Petros, you've been a fabulous guest. 
Um, thanks so much. Thank and you so much, Mark. We can talk about another topic one day. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.